The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome back, guys. Sam here, and this week I was joined for a second time by consultant nephrologist Dr. Ravathi Whitaker-Jane to discuss polycystic kidney disease as it might be presented in PACES. As always, we discuss all the important features of these patients, the pertinent signs, important investigations, and the management steps that need to be considered in these patients if they come up in your PACES. And finally, we have a list of legends to thank before today's show for demonstrating incredible generosity and donating to the Buy Me A Coffee page. So massive thank you and congratulations to Tio who donated after he passed first time. More congratulations go to Mahak who donated after listening to the pod on a flight to New York. More congratulations go to at Brand Farms who incredibly has now passed both the MRCOG for Obzengaini training and the MRCP. Seriously, seriously incredible achievement. And lastly, but certainly not least, Nick donated on the page before he sat his exam last Saturday. So Nick, this one's for you. We hope it went as well as it possibly could have and we sincerely thank you and everyone else who has donated for your amazing generosity. But I've witted on long enough now, so without further ado, let's get stuck into this week's episode. guys to another episode of the pre-paces podcast and today we're joined by another returning guest the last time we spoke in great detail on our first ever double header topic of renal transplants and we've managed to get her back for some more paces fun this time taking a detailed look at polycystic kidney disease we're delighted to be joined again by dr ravathi whitaker jane known affectionately as rj so rj welcome back to the show Thank you uh, for having me again. This episode, we're going to be talking about polycystic kidney disease. And this is another one of the really common topics which comes up in PACES. And we're going to be talking through everything from the approach to the station, the examination, the station which is most likely to be found in, which is an abdominal examination station. And then later on, going into the investigation and management of these patients. So to start off, RJ... Why is it so important that PACES includes 
something like polycystic kidney disease as a topic? Why does this so often come up? Well, there are two separate but you know interesting questions, I suppose. Um, why why is it important? I suppose because it's the most common inherited disease that we see as nephrologists. But in, in terms of paces, and that's what our listeners want to hear about, um, there are several reasons why I think this is a, a common station. Uh, firstly, patients with polycystic kidney disease have detectable signs that can, you know, give you a bedside diagnosis almost. And actually, often these patients are quite asymptomatic and stable, so can be brought to examinations easily, in part because the population is young compared to some of the patients we see in an aging population, and they can be brought back again and again. And I think the final reason really is that the examiners can add some complexity to it because these patients don't just in terms of your exam have uh, signs of polycystic kidney disease, but they may have other features of end-stage renal disease or renal transplantation, which are important to recognise during the station. Yeah, fantastic. And so a lot of the stuff that we talk about today will also hark back to our previous double header episode that we recorded with uh, Jim Moriarty. So plenty of this will still be applicable. So if listeners, you haven't listened to that episode, head on back, listen to that one, because it is twinned perfectly with this kind of episode. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode looking at polycystic kidney disease. Okay, so just to start off, RJ, what exactly is polycystic kidney disease? So essentially, um, polycystic kidney disease is a genetic condition um, in which the renal tubules become structurally abnormal. Um, and this results in a progressive, well, in the progressive formation of um, fluid-filled cysts. Now, these, um, the tubules that are affected are actually non-functioning. Um, and over time, as they grow, they also compress healthy parenchymal tissue and tubules. And so over time, there is increased a loss of kidney function, both because of the formation of cysts, which render those tubules um, ineffective, but due to the compression of healthy tissue. In terms of the um, genetics of polycystic kidney disease, the first thing to say really is that it's complex, more complex than perhaps we appreciated maybe 20 years ago. I'm going to try and keep it as simple as possible for our listeners. Now, for the obvious reasons, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, ADPKD, um, for the rest of this <laughs> podcast to make it easier on my, on my tongue, um, is, is common and is more common than autosomal recessive. And so that's what we're going to talk about um, predominantly um, in the podcast today. Now, I as many of you uh, will know from your previous reading, historically, we would have described ADPKD into two subsets, subsets, ADPKD1 and ADPKD2, with a kind of split of 80 to 15% respectively. Now, actually, things are more complex than that because there are other mutations that have been found, and there is around a 10% de novo mutation um, rate. So, there can be a patient who presents without a family history of end-stage renal disease or polycystic kidney disease, who then undergoes genetic analysis and is found to have a, a known mutation. Now, that risk then of transmission is the same as if there had been a previous family history for those mutations. In terms of keeping things simple, uh, 
for your exam, I would stick to that generally speaking, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease um, is in two subsets with uh, ADPKD1 being uh, most common. So that's due to a defect at chromosome 16 um, at the PKD1 locus. ADPKD2 is found on chromosome 4 um, at the PKD2 locus. So very easy to remember. And those encode polycystin 1 and 2 respectively. The next thing I wanted to come on to, uh, RJ, is how can these patients with polycystic kidney disease present to any medical professional? And how probably after that will they end up getting to see a, a renal physician? I think there are several uh, types of presentation. So actually, most patients probably present asymptomatically, particularly if there's a known family history of polycystic kidney disease. So um, uh, patients will either come themselves uh, to the GP, contact their GP and ask to be referred because they've found that they're, they have a family member with polycystic kidney disease. And then actually, there's a, a proportion of patients who present asymptomatically, but are found on investigation for either CKD uh, or, or hypertension. The next group of patients are really those ones that are symptomatic. And I actually probably see we see less of those patients. And they may present with the complications of a polycystic kidney disease. So uh, hematuria, recurrent urinary tract infections, stones. Um, or in abdominal pain. So, you know, investigation for abdominal pain may re- reveal cysts. The other asymptomatic group that we see are patients who have had investigation for something else. So imaging for another reason and are found to have um, cysts and then are referred that way. Yeah, really, really important. And the next thing I wanted to come on to is, is actually formally diagnosing this condition, because I'm sure our listeners will have seen on ultrasound or CT or MRI scan reports of, you know, an incident, an incidental kidney cyst or an incidental liver cyst. And often, you know, the report, it will say, you know, of, uh, of, of minimal clinical significance or something similar. So what's the difference between those and then the patients who end up being diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease? Um, that's a really good question. So in terms of a diagnosis, I'd look at your patient group into, and split them into two groups, essentially those with a known family history and those without a, a family history of either end-stage renal disease or polycystic kidney disease. So that's how I would look at um, which path you're going to go down in terms of further investigation. Um, the next thing to say when you're looking at your um, investigations, most commonly an ultrasound, um, is that it's you know, polycystic kidney disease is a progressive disease. So um, the number and size of cysts increase with, with age. And I think that's very important when you're looking at criteria. Historically speaking, be, because AT, ADPKD1 is more common, the diagnostic uh, ultrasound criteria were um, based on those. Now, over time, people came to appreciate that would then miss um, uh, the autosomal recessive or de novo mutations. And as such, there is a... Um, uh, modified, now known as the Ravine Pay uh, Diagnostic for uh, Ultrasound Criteria. So within that, um, in a patient between 15 to 39 years old, um, they must have greater than or equal to three cysts in, in total, so over two kidneys. Between the ages of 40 and 59, there has to be greater than or equal to two cysts in each kidney. Over 60, at least four in each. Um, 
between the ages of 16 and 40, again, because you're much more likely to be able to sensitively say that somebody has polycystic kidney disease after the age of 40, and that kind of patient group who have no family history, you may look at doing MRI or CT imaging because they will pick up smaller cysts. And in that subgroup, more than 10 cysts in total could be diagnostic. So just to kind of summarize that, in somebody with a known family history, you would probably use basic ultrasound to make your initial diagnosis using that criteria. In those without a family history, you're likely to again, perform ultrasound, but if they're younger, you may look at MRI to get a better idea, be able to pick up the smaller cysts. And you may refer for genetic um, testing because it may be a known um, de novo mutation. And, you know, that's relevant in terms of the counselling of that patient later, da later down the line. Yeah, fantastic. And we'll be going into a bit more detail in, uh, in terms of all of the investigations which we would do for these patients, or at least that which you should mention in your PACES exam. And we'll be talking about the types of things which uh, are relevant in the genetic counselling of these patients. So back to the PACES station side of things. As I said at the top, it's most likely to be an abdominal examination station. So that's a station one. And it's, it's been a station which I've heard many times, has come up time and time again, and the lead-in could be any number of things. I've, I've heard from various different sources, it could be anything from abdominal pain and swelling, patients feeling generally unwell, patients with oliguria or anuria, patients, if, if they really want to give you a, uh, you know, a tap-in, they'll say a patient with a family history of kidney disease, and then you're asked to examine this patient. So those are the potential types of leadings which could come up anything to add to that rj no i you know i think it's really difficult i think um i think they're probably the most common i think it would be perhaps a little bit cruel to give you a leading as this patient's got hypertension but then i think if you get that you should really be looking at a, a renal diagnosis at least but yes i agree that that's probably the most um common leadings for that station okay brilliant so we start our examination and as always, we start from the end of the bed. So RJ, what can the listeners expect to detect from the end of the bed or what, they, what might they see in a patient with uh, polycystic kidney disease from the end of the bed? Kind of go back to your lead-in, you know, because that's important. Remember what information the examiners are giving you. That's there, you know, usually to help. No one, the exam's not set up to make you fail. So that piece of information is probably key. So if they've given you a lead in that this patient's presenting with abdominal swell swelling, make sure you have a good look at the end of the bed because you may see, you know, enlarged polycystic kidney disease, clear distension of the abdomen. There's a clear fullness in the flanks and that can be um, very noticeable and easy to recognize at, um, at the end of the bed. You're likely to see somebody who's relatively young and as somebody being middle-aged myself, I say young in the kind of uh, realms of somebody who's, you know, 40 to 60. Um, and I think that can be very different to some of your uh, kind of other stations, maybe cardiology in a patient with, you know, aortic stenosis or in, in a neurology station. So, you know, the patient is going to be young. <laughs> um, and then, you know, have a look. So top to tail, does the patient look well? Do they look pale? Um, there are extra renal complications of polycystic kidney disease that may be evident at the bedside and we will talk about those a little bit later but 
are there any um, signs of neurological deficits? So I think that's the main thing to see. Yeah. And in terms of the neurological deficits, we're thinking things like walking aids, walking sticks, Zimmer frames from people who have some form of neurological deficit. And as you teased ahead, we will be talking about that later in the episode. Next, we come to the hands. And as far as I could tell, RJ, apart from just checking the pulse in the usual way, there's not too much in the hands. But coming to the arms, we may well find some other some other signs. Absolutely. So, you know, unless they have a, a patient who, uh, frankly, I hope they wouldn't um, bring into the station, uh, you should check for asterixis. So if a patient had advanced um, end-stage renal disease, um, either having not yet started some form of renal replacement therapy or yet to be transplanted, they may have a uremic metabolic flap. Um, this may be the case in a patient who has a failing transplant, in fact. So I would check for asterixis. Then more specifically at the arms, what, what you're really looking at is for the um, presence of fistulas and trying to make note of whether those fistulas are um, uh, still functioning. So I would look at both arms at this point, ask the patient just to expose both arms, you know, be efficient in your kind of examination at this point, look for um, fissures. They should be obvious. Now, if there is a um, a small scar, either um, at the wrist or at the elbow, um, but not a visible um, fistula, I would uh, palpate to uh, palpate for a thrill and um, think about auscultating later on because that may be a very um, early fistula. If you haven't seen one yet, you know, we have the internet, uh, Google it. If you don't, if you're not working in a place with a, a renal department and it's not going to be easy for you to um, look at a fistula, then, you know, there's a wealth of information out there. Yeah, absolutely. And one habit that I got into during my paces revision was actually just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. Often fistulas, uh, they do create a small sort of bump in the skin surface. And actually, I made a habit of actually running my hand up and down the arm from, you know, as almost as high up as their bicep all the way down, just to make sure that I wasn't missing a very subtle one. So listeners do do look out for that and do consider just running your hand down the, the length of the arm to make sure you don't miss something very subtle. Um, the other thing to say really is if you do um, see a fistula, you know, you're going to be thinking at that point is, is this patient, you know, if you've examined them, inspected and seen that they've, they've got fullness in their flanks, they've also got a fistula. Uh, if that fistula is being used, you will be able to tell. There will be either a dressing because it's been needled recently um, or there be maybe um, visible needling points. So that's a, you know, a, a real clue about whether this patient's end stage or chronic kidney disease or until you get to that abdomen, knowing whether they've been transplanted. So it's important to know if the fistula is um, still functioning, whether it's being used. Fantastic. So moving on to the head and neck of these patients. What might the listeners be looking for in the, in the head and neck, RJ? So again, I think there's nothing specific that you're going to see on inspection unless the patient is uh, has CKD stage five. Um, and you may, if at that point, not know because you're really waiting to get into your abdominal examination. But I was would, out of routine, um, check for their JVP. 
and and have a quick but very brief assessment of their um, uh, hydration status, are they uvolemic or or otherwise not? Um, I wouldn't spend too much time on here. And if you are feeling that you're kind of under pressure because you spent some time looking at the other signs more peripherally, then you know don't necessarily spend lots of time doing that. But I would at least have a look at the JVP. You can um, have a look at look for conjunctival pallor. Obviously, with advancing CKD, uh, a patient can develop renal anemia. But actually, um, that's not always true of patients with polycystic kidney disease because polycythemia is, is a complication. So don't you know? Don't make up signs. Have a look if it's not um, obviously pale. That's not a given that they're going to have anemia. Yeah, excellent and. Uh... One thing which I thought you, patients may see in the chest uh, harks back to our previous discussion on renal transplants as well and, and thinking about other forms of hemodialysis. So scars on the chest from a tunneled line, you could see a subtle uh, scar in the neck from a previous central line as well, but it's, it is going to be subtle. And as RJ correctly says, these are very subtle signs which are probably not going to be the do or die of the station and really you want to be getting to the abdomen as quickly as possible. So look very, very quickly for these things, but really when you come to the abdomen, that's going to be where where the money is for the station. And I think it's you know kind of worth noting mentioning if you haven't seen a tunneled line um you may have seen central lines and obviously then you may just get a, a, a kind of with a central line you'll just see a small scar kind of in that anterior triangle of the neck with a tunneled line you should see two scars on the um on the chest wall because they're tunneled um kind of uh, under the skin uh, either on the right or the left so you if you're unsure about a scide, if you can, I would have a look there and that will kind of give you that additional information because that's usually more evident than that in the neck. Okay, fantastic. Now, we've got to where the money is. We've got to the abdomen. Hopefully you got through all of that very quickly. And so... The first thing you ought to do is a, is a detailed inspection of the abdomen. So, RJ, before we actually lay a hand on our patient, what should the candidates be looking for? Yeah, the first thing, I think this is kind of my own uh, experience, is that it's normal to feel anxious in your exam. Give yourself that extra few seconds to really have a look. You may feel like you're looking, but you're not actually looking. That kind of looking is often this time when you're just letting a bit of wave of panic go over you so actually if you didn't get a good look at the start because you were anxious and just worrying and you went straight to the hands just you know stand next to the patient have another look get down at eye level and have a look at the abdomen too if you're not sure if it, the abdomen is distended and then have a look for scars now the kind of scars that you're going to see in a patient who may have polycystic kidney disease can be quite complex so the first thing I would look for obvious scar for a renal transplant so in either iliac fossa or so typical rutherford morrison scar um and if you've not laid on the patient actually it's a good time to sit the patient forward if you to look for scars at the back now if you can remember to do that before you lay them down wonderful but if if you don't make a point of doing that at the end when you auscultate the lungs particularly if you identify that they've got end-stage renal disease so make sure you have a look at the back you may be looking for a nephrectomy scar, you know, a hockey stick scar um, from a, a patient that's had a kidney removed. Now, if you see that scar, do not say 
that the patient has bilaterally blottable kidneys because they may well not you know if there is an nephrectomy scar they may have had one kidney removed yeah excellent advice there and the one thing which i would say as well is as rj says to look really closely particularly because you'll be examining the patient from their right hand side or, or your left hand side of the bed really looking round to their left flank can be very difficult and i would say if they have had a left side nephrectomy, you just cannot afford to miss it. So as RJ says, really take the time to get a good look, especially around their left flank, to make sure you're not missing a left side nephrectomy, which might, it's almost like your uh, your pacer's blind spot because it's almost directly opposite the patient or do- opposite your eye line of the patient. So yeah, absolutely correct. I like that. I think I should, I'm going to use that in my um, pacer's teaching, your blind spots for uh, for cases. That's, that's a good one other things to kind of inspect really so if you don't see a transplant scar you don't see an nephrectomy scar you know are there other scars from um, a pd catheter and you know that i can't give you any definitive rules about what scars you'll see for a pd catheter because they will vary depending on whether that was um uh, placed surgically um versus a medical insertion so you know if there are some smaller scars um that may be a suggestive of a patient who has had a pd catheter they may have a pd catheter if they're a patient with um polycystic, polycystic kidney disease and on peritoneal dialysis so make sure you look for those things and that moves us i think nicely onto palpation anyway so yeah, you know, again, if, if you get to that renal abdomen and there's a whole host of uh, signs that you've seen, give yourself a second um, to kind of make sure that you know what you're doing next. It can be very easy when you're inspecting to want to rush to put your hand there. So just give yourself a few seconds to take stock if there have been a lot of signs and then move on to palpation. Yeah, so coming to palpation. Obviously, you have to go through the the motions of an abdominal examination, which includes palpating for all uh, all aspects of organomegaly, as well as palpating for tenderness. But what particularly should the listeners be looking to palpate in the abdomen? Absolutely agree. So keep to your system. You've got a patient who has signs of being a renal patient. You're, you're going to want to examine at this point, make sure you're not missing polycystic kidney disease. So I would do your examination as normal. You don't want to miss hepatomegaly from hepatic cysts, but not all patients will have that. So examine for that and then examine for your kidneys, bearing in mind any scars. And, you know, the the good old blottable kidneys, keeping one hand still and blotting upwards and then changing hands and doing that way. You know, it is a proven technique that works, but sometimes actually just popping your hand underneath you will feel the um the kidneys being there yeah and i think this is a really difficult skill not least because if the patients aren't on the ward or or our listeners don't have a, a job in a renal department these patients don't come around very often and so this is an area where having it known around your workplace that you're sitting pace is really valuable because then when these patients do come in or uh, consultants know that there are paces candidates in the hospital they will Hopefully, if they've got an interest in patients teaching and what have you, they'll make these patients known to you and give you the opportunity to examine. So all I'd say is if, if you come across any of these patients, try, uh, try as, as well as you can to examine these patients if you get the opportunity. Don't pass up the opportunity to, to blot a kidney because you may not get another opportunity before your exam. And, you know, the rules that um, they don't uh, change, you know, they don't descend with respiration, they don't always hold true. When you have large masses 
they sometimes feel like they can move. So I don't, I wouldn't stick to those rules unless you're pushed for those during the examination. If you can blot them, then I think that is sufficient. And I think, you know, in the heat of the exam, trying to check if it moves with respiration is just going to add to your anxiety, particularly if you've not done a renal job before, not felt a lot of them. You're going to second guess yourself about what that is. Is it a liver? Is it a kidney? Or is it both? You know, I think just examine, is it blottable? If there's a liver, you might, should be able to percuss an edge for that. So just try and keep it simple. Don't worry about uh, those added complexities. Yeah, completely agree. And um, unfortunately, blotting is probably a skill which isn't going away in any time in the near future. So definitely something to, to work on if you haven't had the opportunity to. And then you're going to progress through your uh, your systematic abdominal uh, examination, palpate and percuss for a liver, palpate and percuss for a spleen. And then you're going to come to auscultate. And RJ, is there anything specific that the listeners could auscultate for in this station? I think there's a couple of things to say. So, you know, this is a good time to moving away from the abdomen. If you picked up a fistula, you know, you've got your stethoscope now. Go and have a listen if you're not sure if it's functioning or not. Then the next thing to say is, no, I don't think there is anything specific to hear. If there's a transplant, you may hear a brewery. That does not mean anything in particular you know um if you auscultate a brew of a renal transplant some people would say we, that patient needs to be investigated for a renal artery stenosis but i've certainly heard breweries over um transplants in absolutely healthy um transplants if you hear um a brew over the liver then you really need to be thinking about other slightly rarer diagnoses for example um, von hippelinda or hemangioblastomas which you know um, heaven forbid if you get that in your exam, but you know, um, and then common things are common. So if you hear a brewery, cardiovascular disease is the commonest um, cause of death in patients with polycystic kidney disease. Do they just have, have hypertensive breweries? So don't get yourself in too much of an, a pickle. If you hear it, mention it, give a differential diagnosis, but um, if everything else fits, don't let that worry you too much. Yeah. Fantastic. And then the last part of the examination is always looking at the legs. And the only thing which I can really think of here is, is checking for pedal edema as a marker of fluid status. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the main thing. Uh, you know, if you've done a renal job, you will see some people with end-stage renal disease who have, you know, very, have cirrhosis, very dry skin. So if you have a patient whose skin is looking like it's in, is in bad condition, and then, you know, that can be a sign that actually they've got end-stage renal disease. So, you know, if it's not your young kind of patient otherwise who's looking well, that may be able to give you insight into where they are in their um, kind of CKD. So if you've got a patient who's got very dry skin, who's either looking um, fluid overloaded or dry, um, ha has got a lining or an active fistula, you, but they've got blottable kidneys, you know, you may be able to say that patient has um, end-stage renal disease due to polycystic kidney disease and their current mode of renal replacement therapy is whatever you find so if the patient's not looking healthy they have other kind of uremic skin changes that's an an important sign brilliant and then always at the end of the examination the sort of convention is that the candidates will say to complete my examination i would do this that and the other i whilst a lot of people would say oh you know i'd perform a, a digital rectal examination or whatever i'd like to be a bit more specific so with something like this where you're suspecting a renal diagnosis i would probably only mention doing a urine dip but again 
that's something which you're going to cover off in your investigations anyway. So I don't know how much that adds at the end of an, at the end of a, your examination to add that in when you're probably going to mention it as part of your investigations anyway. Again, you know, the examiners there are going to try and help you if they want it. They'll push for it. Is it. You know, if they ask you for anything else, then yes, say you'd like to do a urine dip. You may even say a blood pressure, which I think is more relevant than a digital rectal examination. Uh, if they do push you and, you know, they're being fastidious about the fact this is an abdominal examination, then say it. The, the also, the thing to say is don't break from your habits. If you've practiced and that's something that you feel comfortable saying, but I'd rather you say the specific th- things than saying a digital rectal examination without any real reason to do it. So that brings us to the end of the examination. But after this very short break, we'll be covering off the presentation, investigations and management of these patients. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors, Past Test. As part of their massive back catalogue of videos looking at the MRCP PACE's common stations, they have specific videos focused on a station one examination of a polycystic kidney disease patient. This is perfect to supplement your learning for this condition after listening to this episode of the podcast. So to get access, just click on any of the links labeled past test in the show notes. Now back to the show. And welcome back to this episode on polycystic kidney disease. And so far, we've covered the likely lead-in, some of the basics of the condition, and all the way through our examination. But now we're coming to the presentation side of the station. The first thing I would say is, obviously, you have to present the signs which you found, which uh, indicates you that this patient has polycystic kidney disease. So that's everything that we've discussed so far. The fullness in the flanks, the blottable kidneys, any other palpable organs in the abdomen. But RJ, how would you go about presenting these patients? The first thing obviously being trying to describe the signs which lead you to that as a diagnosis. So obviously in a station like th- like this, um, the kind of lead-in statement to your presentation can be quite complex. So I would frame this in two ways. And before you open your mouth, think about whether you think this patient has polycystic kidney disease as well and just has CKD or whether this is a patient who has end-stage kidney disease, secondary to polycystic kidney disease, and what form of renal replacement therapy they're on. So end-stage on hemodialysis, either via line or a Fischler, or end-stage with a functioning transplant, or end-stage on peritoneal dialysis. So if you have a patient who has nothing other than blottable kidneys, your most likely diagnosis is going to be this patient has um, chronic kidney disease due to polycystic kidney disease as evidenced by, I would like to confirm my diagnosis with the differential diagnosis for blottable kidneys, essentially. If you have a patient who has all the other signs, that's when you need to think a little bit about why you think this patient has end-stage disease and make sure you're um, discussing that in a systematic manner. Now, I'd like to say it'd be nicer for you to have the um, well patient with blottable kidneys because that's a much simpler presentation. But give yourself again that time to collect your thoughts before you say anything. Yeah, absolutely. And as well as mentioning whether or not they've had or they have evidence of uh, renal replacement, the other thing to mention, as we discussed, is evidence of a nephrectomy as well as a transplant scar. So 
you know, it, it's about taking in these signs in such a rapid fashion, which I think is one of the key skills in paces is taking in so many signs in such a short space of time, holding them in your mind before then telling them back to the examiner. So just make sure that you are mentioning every single sign as you go through your presentation. And the systematic presentation of a patient with end-stage renal failure is pretty much what we went through it in great detail with Jim Moriarty in our last uh, episode, RJ. So we're not going to go through everything to do with that, but I'll just briefly go through the headlines or, or each of each significant point of that presentation. So, so what we said on that occasion was state the patient has end-stage renal failure and the likely cause, listing the preferred differential diagnosis of, in this case, polycystic kidney disease, but also mention the differentials going on from there their current form of renal replacement, as we've mentioned, which may be a, a functioning transplant, a fistula, peritoneal dialysis, other forms of uh, long, long-term long venous access. Your arguments for the transplant functioning or not, uh, if it's not functioning, what renal replacement do they have at the moment? And then lastly, indications as to what immunosuppressive therapy they may be on, which we haven't touched on too much in this episode. And that's partly because patients with polycystic kidney disease, unless they have a transplant, aren't typically immunosuppressed to control the condition. All that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the differential diagnosis of renal enlargement. And this is something which I think examiners would expect you to be able to come out with if you had a station like this in the exam. So RJ... If we can cover each in turn, it's going to have one of one or two of these patients where they may have unilateral renal enlargement or bilateral renal enlargement. So maybe we can cover each of those in turn. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of um, classifying it um, uh, bilateral um, versus unilateral. So, you know, keep things simple. If you do any reading on this, you're going to get um, very quickly overwhelmed uh, with the causes of bilateral cystic renal disease as we've mentioned it's genetically complex and there are um, various other conditions out there that you may not have heard of so um, kind of keep it simple so on the top of your differential it's going to be um, ADPKD then go for your other although these are rare your other um, cystic renal diseases that come up in examination so tuberous sclerosis von Hippel-Lindau amyloidosis, bilateral hydronephrosis, and bilateral renal cell carcinoma. Now, I put those in that order because actually I think it's very unlikely that they're going to bring a patient to the exam who's got bilateral renal cell carcinoma or um, bilateral obstruction. But, you know, they are potential causes clinically of bilateral renal enlargement. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, we haven't specifically mentioned about von Hippel-Lindau or tuberous sclerosis and uh, probably because talking about those conditions warrants a whole episode in and of themselves. So we're not going to cover those in excruciating detail today, but uh, listeners, I'm sure we will cover them uh, in, at some point in this series of podcasts. So that's bilateral renal enlargement. So what about unilateral renal enlargement, RJ? So um, in terms of unilateral renal enlargement, again, is this just um, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease in a patient that's had an nephrectomy? If you've seen that nephrectomy scar, then, you know, that's very likely and I think the most likely uh, cause. It, it could then be renal carcinoma. So a patient who's had renal carcinoma and a nephrectomy. So, you know, has that patient got recurrent disease? So I think that, again, could be at the top of your differential diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, unilateral hydronephrosis. 
Um, you'll see in some textbooks, simple renal cysts. I think it's very unlikely, you know, by the nature of simple cystic diseases that they're not usually blottable. So I would stay away from that in your diagnosis, uh, differential diagnosis. Um, so I, I think they're your main ones. There is one I'm going to mention um, in the bilateral cause, um, which is um, AD HNF1 beta, which um, is another renal um, diagnosis. Um, and it's an Listeners, you can't see this, but I just raised my eyebrows at RJ. <laughs> um, so autosomal dominant, um, uh, it's a, another autosomal dominant cystic disease um, associated with renal impairment, but also MODI. Um, and so if you've got a patient who's, you know, got diabetics on, you really want to go in there for some impressive points. And, you know, you've seen the signs of diabetes, uh, kind of check of capillary blood glucose on the fingertips, and they've got bilateral cystic kidneys, then, you know, having AD HNF1 beta in, the, in, the, in your back pocket's not a bad one. But, you know, minutiae, but from a, a renal specialist point of view, is an important cause of cystic renal disease. And RJ, this might be unfair. HNF1 beta stands for. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Definitely something to have in your back pocket. Definitely don't. If you bring that out first, you're, you're a bold paces candidate. Okay. Um, moving on to the investigations of this patient. So you've presented the patient, you've presented your differential diagnosis, and you should go straight into your investigation. So as always, we start with our simple bedside investigation. So, RJ, what comprises our bedside investigations for these patients? Uh, so, absolutely, first, you know, as a nephrologist, we want a blood pressure, uh, particularly in these patients with polycystic kidney disease. They present early with hypertension, um, and it's an important prognostic factor. So, um, hypertension, you want to check a blood pressure. And then our second most, well, probably our favourite generally is, is urine dip um, we want to know what's in that urine um, and you know no one's going to kind of raise their eyebrows if you say you want to send that urine dip for an MSU or cytology but you know I think they're clinically probably less, less relevant so if you're going to remember to which would be your blood pressure and your urinalysis. Excellent and then moving on to blood tests RJ. So uh, you know, um, you want to be doing quite clearly. The first thing to say is you want to check their excretory renal function. So you're going to check their um, U's and E's. Um, although this is not a blood test, and maybe you could put this in your bedside test, is you're probably going to check the whether the patient has proteinuria. So you're going to send it to the lab for an ACR, an albumin-creatinine ratio. Again, it's an important um, prognostic factor whether the patient has proteinuria. You're going to check the full blood count, either for renal anemia or polycythemia. Um, you're going to check for renal bone disease by checking their bone profile, their LFTs, and um, you know if the patient has abnormal excretory function, perhaps a PTH. So um, I think they're your main ones. Now, you may want to discuss genetic testing. It depends where you want your um, exam questions to go, but um, that is something... Clearly, that's important in a patient who doesn't have a family history of cystic kidney disease. If your leading was this patient has a family history of renal disease, then perhaps that isn't key in your tests. But if it, if not, then I would certainly include that. Yeah, absolutely. And and as RJ says, if you're going to start mentioning things like genetic testing, 
you've got to think the next obvious question for the examiner to ask you is what genetic test are you going to send? So don't chase yourself into a into a dead end by saying you would do things which then you don't have the uh, knowledge to to back up. It can also work in your favour. You know, if you if you memorise the genetic testing like the back of your hand and you absolutely know it, you know you can go down that route and then you can wow the examiners with all your knowledge on the genetic test for uh, polycystic kidney disease. But just be aware that if if you're not willing to learn the ins and outs of the genetics, then you may want to avoid mentioning that. Uh, whilst it's important, you may want to avoid that if you don't want to be chased into a dark alley. Okay, and we touched on the imaging side of things slightly when we talked about the diagnosis, but maybe we could just come back to the, uh, these as they're pretty critical to, to actually diagnosing the, the case, Sarjay. Absolutely. So I think, you know, here kind of showing that you have some knowledge it isn't a bad thing because the questions can't be too complex, but saying you'd like to ask, take a history and ask the patient about any family history of end-stage renal disease or polycystic kidney disease. And if the patient has a positive family history, then your first line investigation is going to be an ultrasound. You know, that's a, a simple, easy bit of knowledge that I think, you know, would sound relatively impressive to a non-renal uh, physician. Um, and then I'd, uh, you know, in the case where a patient doesn't have a known family history, you may look to do other um, imaging, including CT or MRI. Now, it wouldn't be wrong to do a CT or MRI in a patient with um, a family history of renal disease because it does have um, implications in terms of information for treatment of their uh, polycystic kidney disease, which we'll talk a, li a little bit about later. Fantastic. I guess the last thing is we always come to special tests at the end of the uh, investigations. Is there anything uh, quite specific for these types of patients? I guess a renal biopsy probably isn't indicated if it's a mainly imaging-based diagnosis. No, I think it would be um, unfortunate if we performed a <laughs> you, biopsy you in a patient with polycystic kidney disease, <laughs> <laughs> unless there was another indication, you know, um, like a suspicious mass so no really the the diagnosis for polycystic kidney disease will be imaging plus or minus genetic testing fantastic and then moving on to the management of these patients now one of the things we've mentioned already is uh, patient education because in all of these conditions where it's a lifelong diagnosis, they then have to know about the condition, know about the red flag warning signs. So what are the sorts of things which the patients need to be educated about when we diagnose them with these conditions, RJ? So, you know, we're talking about general management here and the education is is going to be actually very broad for a patient who gets their diagnosis for the first time. So, and I think that's true of any station that you have, but they're going to be a component of that is going to be um, counselling in terms of genetic information and education about the genetic component of their disease. Then there will be education regarding um, uh, progression of disease. Many of these patients present um, asymptomatically or uh, incidentally and a big part of education is um, understanding how the disease progresses and what that might mean. So the development of chronic kidney disease, um, the likely rate at which that might occur. 
And within that, there's this nebulous, um, and it's nebulous to a patient because they feel well, but controlling the other aspects of the disease that are also asymptomatic, so hypertension and cardiovascular risk. So they all require education. So it's not just education um, about the disease, but also educating them about CKD and cardiovascular risk within that. One other question I had is that in a patient with known polycystic kidney disease, and they are concerned their children may develop the condition, is there any form of screening which can be done for uh, first degree relatives or children of, uh, of people affected by the condition? So um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's a progressive disease. Um, and if you have genetic information, that's really helpful because we know that um, patients with um, ADPKD1 progress more quickly, have a greater cyst burden and develop end stage renal disease on average around 10 to 15 years um, earlier than those with PKD2. Also, the type of mutation, so it's not all the same mutation, so truncating uh, mutations are more severe than missense mutations uh, within that gene locus. So having that information um, can be really helpful. So even if a patient has a family history of polycystic kidney disease, some centres would advocate doing genetic testing to be able to give a much more informed discussions around their rate of disease progression. Brilliant. And and so what are the other important aspects of uh, managing these patients? So your general management for all patients will be um, good blood pressure control, which, you know, has um, is very important. So good pressure control will reduce the uh, rate of progression of CKD and perhaps even um, the development of cysts. And then management of um, uh, cardiovascular risk. So if it's appropriate, statins as well. The next is um, in terms of evidence quality uh, is less strong, but we would recommend salt restriction. So this has impact on not only on blood pressure, but there's some evidence um, that it also salt restriction will delay um, the rate at which cysts um, develop. So salt restriction is important. And, you know, if the evidence around the cyst disease and burden is not significant, actually, we know in terms of our kind of DASH diets, it's you know important in terms of cardiovascular risk. Um, in patients who have CKD stages in one and two, we recommend to keep a healthy fluid balance because there is a slight increased risk of Stone's disease. So your kind of general principles. The next one is avoiding in CKD NSAIDs. I think that's a nice one to put in. Now we can talk a bit more specific treatment um, options. Now I might be a little bit unfair for this to come up in your questioning but um, I think the only way it would come up is would do you know any specific um, interventions for polycystic kidney disease and the one you should know really the only one is is Torvaptan which is um, vasopressin receptor 2 antagonist you can do some reading around that but that would be your um, specific treatment there are specific criteria for the patients that can start um, torvaptan so the patients must have ckd stage two or three at initiation of treatment and it must be stopped once they develop ckd stage five and those patients must have a history of polycystic kidney disease either by family history or genetic testing and they must also have rapidly progressive kidney disease. Now, how that is defined really depends upon the centre that you work in, and there are some very good criteria, including the Mayo 
criteria and um, the pro-PKD scoring systems. Um, historically speaking, we looked at rate of progression, so um, a drop in kidney function of five mils per year or two and a uh, five mils over five years or two and a half mils um, within a year um, was sufficient enough to suggest rapidly progressive. Now, this is where things are getting a bit complex and I won't go exactly, but this is where CT and MRI testing uh, are important because the next way we can define rapidly progressive disease is by how quickly um, disease is progressing in terms of cyst burden. So um, a series of two or three CTs or MRI to look at height-adjusted total kidney volume is a very important prognostic risk factor for disease progression. So if they ask you why you would do a CT or MRI versus an ultrasound, that's where you're, that's where you're going to really impress them as to say, actually, if we want to give them targeted, a patient targeted therapy with tolvaptin, um, total kidney volume adjusted for height. Wow, fantastic. And even though it is really advanced stuff, you know, this is the sort of stuff which is really going to wow your examiners and, and put you in the 20 out of 20 box if, if, uh, if you get into that point. So yeah, really advanced stuff, but also really valuable for the listeners. So I think we've come to the end of our chat on management. So normally now we come on to the common examiner questions. And, and if you've uh, rattled through your investigations of management, the examiners may still have a few of the old classic questions on on ADPKD to at least see out the rest of the time. And so I've included a couple of these, hopefully to just tick the boxes to make sure that we are covering off all our bases. So the first one, which I thought we would talk through, RJ, which we've already mentioned uh, in and out in the management, is the, the complications of of ADPKD because this is something which uh, is not just uh, whilst there are renal complications there's also extra renal manifestations and complications as well. Absolutely and I think if the, if an examiner asks you what are the um, complications of polycystic kidney disease beyond end-stage renal disease or CKD then I think this is a really good way of kind of preventing any further questions by dividing into those specific to the cysts and those that are extra renal because you can talk and then hopefully prevent any further more complex questions. So, you know, specifically um, complications from the cysts include pain from um, growth of cysts and cyst size. And then you have cyst accidents, so cyst hemorrhage, which again can cause pain or hematuria, urinary tract infections um, and stones. You can get cysts elsewhere. So, um, liver cysts and um, pancreatic cysts. Now, um, hepatic cysts actually don't cause um, liver function impairment. There can be mild um, abnormalities in liver function testing, but actually liver function is usually well-preserved. The major issue really with hepatic cysts is that of kind of discomfort from growth of cysts, particularly in women um, and the cysts are estrogen sensitive. So if you have a, a woman of fertile age um, and you're not sure that the patient's got hepatic cysts and renal cysts, it wouldn't be a bad guess to assume that they do. Then it's moving to your extra renal complications. So the one that we worry about, and that's intracranial hemorrhage from aneurysms, is the main one. You have polycythemia, hypertension, cardiovascular disease as a consequence of CKD as, as well, and then valvular lesions. So most commonly um, mitral valve prolapse, but also atrial regurgitation. Yeah, fantastic. And like we mentioned uh, at the start of our examination, 
intracranial aneurysms obviously uh, you know put the patients at risk of intracranial hemorrhage so looking for any neurological signs or, or uh, mobility aids would be the thing to, to look for in in that case absolutely the the thing to say is that you know um intracranial hemorrhage in polycystic uh, due to rupture aneurysms, the mortality is quite high. It's around 50%. Um, and actually, stroke is more common as a consequence of hypertension than neurological compromise from, um, you know, an, an aneurysm that's ruptured. So I think if you see a patient who has old stroke signs, then I think you need to mention both that this could be due to complication from intracranial hemorrhage, but also um, more commonly is the kind of, uh, you know, the risk of stroke is is higher in patients with CKD and hypertension. And RJ, one of the last questions, uh, particularly person if the candidates have seen a nephrectomy scar in, in these patients. So one of the most obvious questions for the examiners are, is, would be, what are the indications for a nephrectomy in, in these patients? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think if you if you've got to that point, then you know you're doing really really well. Um, so the way I would look at this is that generally speaking, um, nephrectomies are done for two reasons, and the first is to make room for a transplant. So with very large kidneys, there may be no space um, for renal transplantation, and um, actually. Uh, a nephrectomy is a good way of making space. And that does, in a sense, mean that patients will uh, develop end stage more quickly, but um, sometimes is necessary. The second reason to perform a nephrectomy would be due to the complications. So this may be due to recurrent um, urinary tract infection. So patients who have not just urinary tract infection, but recurrent admissions with sepsis um, it would be the strongest reason. Um, Occasionally, due to pain, we nephrectomies are performed, but um, you know, infection is more likely to be a reason for uh, a nephrectomy. Uh, you'll sometimes read that there's an increased risk of renal cell carcinoma in patients with ADPKD. That's not true. Um, it, it hasn't. The evidence isn't strong around that. There is a slight increased risk in acquired cystic disease, um, but we, we won't expand into that too much. So um, I think, you know, in terms of polycystic kidney disease, the safest way of saying is, is um, to make room for transplantation, um, recurrent sepsis due to infection um, and occasionally um, due to uh, size and due to comfort of patient. Well, I think that leads us pretty much to the end of this week's show. So we have covered off the basics of polycystic kidney disease. We've talked through a systematic examination of these patients. We've covered your presentation, the investigations and management of these patients. So that only leads us to pay our huge debt of thanks to uh, Dr. Ravathi Whitaker-Jane, affectionately RJ. But RJ, it's been a pleasure having you back on the podcast again to discuss another fantastic patient topic. Thank you, um, Sam. Uh, very enjoyable. <laughs> and we have loved having you as always. And listeners, that's the end of another show. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review wherever you get them, Apple, Spotify or wherever else. We always love to hear from you. So get in touch either via our Twitter, it's at prepacespodcast or via our website, that's uh, prepacespodcast.com. As ever, if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, it's buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. 
But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces podcast.